Rory, can you tell me about your first day at pre-K? Did you meet new friends? Yes. Um, so I met a lot of new friends, and um, they were super nice, but I was a little nervous. Yeah, what else did you do? Um, I showed people my um, pony, and they liked it. Okay. Did you have fun? Yes. Are you excited to go back tomorrow? Yes, silly. <laughs> That's Rory. She's four, and she's telling her mother, Pam Armstrong, about her first day at pre-K this summer in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Camilla, do you remember your first day of preschool? Not at all. I remember my first day of kindergarten, but pre-K? That's too long ago. Do you remember, Ken? Listen, if it's been too long for you, Camillo, it has certainly been way too long for me. I, I hear you. Um, I'm pretty sure that I did go to pre-K, but the only thing I remember is the graduation ceremony. Why exactly are we talking about preschool in a podcast about longevity, Ken? That's a good question, because we tend to associate health and well-being in later life with decisions we make in midlife and beyond. But in fact, things that happen in early childhood, things that we do not control ourselves, can play an enormous role in who gets to live long, healthy lives and who doesn't. Because I go to preschool, it improves my cognitive capabilities. I do better in school. I'm a higher achiever. I get more education. That's Steve Barnett. He's an economist who studies preschool practices and policy and is a co-director of the National Institute for Early Childhood Education at Rutgers University. Well, we know that those things are associated with better health. They're associated with better health because I make better decisions about my health. Because my human capital is more valuable, I invest more rationally in keeping myself safe. I'm diverted from things like crime and delinquency that offer risks for my health. I'm better at evaluating what is a risky behavior and how do I minimize my risks. But also, I get a better job, I have better benefits, I get better health care. Right, so all of those things. We talked to Barnett because he has studied how decisions and investments made in early life have a cascading effect on a person's life and health. Barnett's work and those of other social scientists caught our eye because they help explain large disparities in life expectancy in this country. Disparities that have relatively little to do with what we eat or where we get our health care and are instead the results of decisions our society makes or doesn't make. And that's the story of this season. Over six episodes, starting in early life and extending across the life course, we're gonna be looking at the big choices society makes that can have enormous impact on the course of our lives. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lies, a lifetime of inequality. I'm Ken Stern, and I'll be your host on this journey. But I won't be alone. I'm Carrie Thompson. I'm Erin Bump. And I'm Camilo Garzon, and we're the producers for Century Lives. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. And from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. In August, Camillo and I traveled to Albuquerque. 
And there, the rollout of Constitutional Amendment 1 is creating the opportunities for families to access free childcare in New Mexico. But it's more than free childcare. The state will pay childcare providers more money per child, more families will be eligible to receive free childcare, and childcare workers will get permanent raises of $3 over what they were making before the pandemic, creating a new floor of $15 per hour. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because this is the end of the story. Our story begins uh, 12 years ago when things in the land of enchantment didn't look so promising, especially for children. At the time, New Mexico ranked near the bottom in virtually all the indicators of childhood success. So at the time we saw uh, the trend, New Mexico was every year decreasing in its outcomes on the Ann Casey Foundation uh, report. At that time, we were 46th actually in children's well-being, and it was sinking dramatically. We knew that we were lagging the country in um, home visiting, childcare, and pre-K. That's Alan Sanchez. He's the president of CHI St. Joseph's Children. He told us that not only was the situation bad and getting worse, it was very difficult to successfully advocate for change because it was viewed in New Mexico as just the way things are. We were going to have to help the people of New Mexico wake up. It's like living next to a train track. I built this new house and a little farm next to the train track, and you never slept there. The first night we stay the night there, I tell my wife, we will never be able to sell this house. That's like New Mexico. Five years later, a brother-in-law comes, spends the night with us, and he says, how can you stand that train? What train? What train? That's New Mexico. New Mexico could not hear the train. We were deaf to it because of the, the culture uh, of poverty and the years in poverty. But how to shake things up? How to upend the culture of low expectations? New Mexico, of course, administered all the major poverty programs for families and children, such as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. But increasingly, these programs were seen as band-aids, not solutions. Let me give you an example. If you think about a child who's maybe facing big challenges, maybe they don't have enough food to eat. That's Amber Wallen. She's the executive director of New Mexico Voices for Children, an organization that plays a pivotal role in the state by creating policy initiatives for children and families. Camilo and I talked with her in her office in downtown Albuquerque that teams with mementos of the organization's efforts to help children. And we know, of course, that that impacts a lot of aspects of a kid's life. They may go to school hungry. They may not do well in school or they may perform poorly on a test. They have less ability to regulate their emotions. They may get in trouble more. Higher hospitalization rates, higher disciplinary rates if a child doesn't have enough to eat. And so, of course, maybe one solution there is a food pantry and giving more food to a family. But if you think about what an upstream solution is to that, that's going to the public policy level, to the systems level, looking at all the different ways that impact a family's ability to provide for their family. But what was that public policy solution? How could they get upstream, as Wallen said, and solve the problems before they even start? There were clues from a study that began about 50 years ago. In 1972, the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute launched a first-of-its-kind experiment in North Carolina. Called the Abecedarian Project, it tested the impact of a high-quality early childhood education program on a group of high-risk infants. 57 children were put into an almost 40-hour-a-week program starting within months of birth. The other 54 children were put into a control group. 
By the end of the four and a half year program, the children in the treatment group are doing materially better in terms of cognitive functioning and school readiness. And it was a signal of the preparatory value of early childhood education. But it didn't end there. It didn't. Researchers continued to track their participants in the program for decades, so that by the early 2000s, it was clear that something extraordinary had happened. Children, now adults in the treatment group, were much more likely to have graduated from college and found stable employment. And there were also unexpected benefits in terms of better social decision-making, reduced criminal behavior, and even better health. The Abbasidarian Project was just a start. Other projects came along, such as... The Perry Preschool Study. That's Steve Barnett, who we heard from earlier. He told us that the Perry Preschool Study, like the Abbasidarian Project before it, focused on low-income children and deepened our understanding of how early childhood education would have a cascading effect over the course of a lifetime. It would begin with managing emotions better, and then... I manage my social relationships better. I think before I act isn't just something that helps me in school. It's something that keeps me out of a fight. And so you have all these social and emotional things that then contribute to better health. Because I'm better at school, I get rewarded for that. People tell me I'm good at it. My parents have higher expectations. Because I'm better at getting along with other people, I have more friends than they treat me <laughs> better. So I'm getting more positive feedback. And that sets up this, these kinds of virtual cycles, you know, all of which improve your health. And it happens at a biological level that because I'm less stressed, have a better social-emotional environment. The children that went through preschool in the study were having better and longer lives decades later. It's really extraordinary to think that getting just a couple extra years of early, high-quality schooling and care can make a determinative difference over the course of your life, and who gets to live longer and in better health, and who doesn't. And if you think that is mind-blowing, the evidence suggests that the impact of early childhood education doesn't just end in a single lifetime. Yeah, so it, I'm thinking about just one example, research done by James Heckman and colleagues. Everything we know in economics says the return on investment in people, especially very young people, very, very high. He's a famous economist at University of Chicago. He's done work suggesting that these kinds of early childhood education interventions, and the earlier you start, the better, that there is a sizable return on investment for every dollar spent on these kinds of programs. Um, and a lot of that investment is mediated by, you know, better health outcomes, better educational outcomes, um, being more prepared for entering the workforce, and even that there are potentially intergenerational effects of these kinds of programs. So the kids of uh, people who attended high-quality childcare when they were children uh, seem to also derive some kind of benefit from their parents having attended those kinds of programs. That's Jonas Miller. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Connecticut and formerly a new Map of Life fellow at the Stanford Center on Longevity. So that is blow-your-mind stuff, to find out that early childhood education can have such consequential and long-term even generational impacts. So has that gotten interested parties to invest in universal pre-K? Well, some places you have. Steve Barnett tells us one example. Union City, New Jersey is the poster child 
for successful high quality preschool education in our state. They run an exceptionally high quality program in a community that's 99% Hispanic, 99% low income. Their kids score above the national average on standardized tests through eighth grade. Wouldn't you think more people would be interested in replicating that? But many places still haven't invested, at least not in any uniform manner. Access to high-quality preschool remains spotty in this country, and according to Steve Barnett, is often the working poor, the forgotten middle that is left behind. About half the kids in the United States go to some kind of preschool program at ages three and four. So most kids are getting some preschool before kindergarten. As you move above the poverty line, it drops because we have so many income-tested programs that when you cross the poverty line, a lot of kids don't qualify. And I, I had a, a mom in Texas write me, and she says, I work two jobs, so my family's not poor. But my son has to stay home with his grandfather who doesn't speak English because I can't, I don't qualify now for public supported programs, but I can't afford it. So those are the folks where the participation levels are the lowest. And the problem is particularly acute among working class Latinos. Latinos have the nation's lowest enrollment in early childhood educational programs. And a study by the Education Trust found that only 1% of Latino children enrolled in a state-funded early childhood education program received services that could be characterized as high quality. And that was the situation in New Mexico. Families in New Mexico told us about making difficult choices between paying for childcare and other basic needs like rent. Merlin Gallegos drove three hours from Las Cruces to talk with us. Eso es un, un problema para las familias porque muchos van a tener que decidir entre pagar su casa o pagar el cuidado infantil porque estamos hablando de pagos de 1800. This will be a problem for families. They'll end up choosing between paying for rent or childcare because we're talking about 1800 bucks monthly for some of them, an amount with which you could pay rent or your car. We also heard from Patricia Bustillos, who had grandchildren that would have benefited from early childhood education, but the family was stymied by high costs. She's saying here that her daughter, the mother of her grandchildren, is paying about 80 bucks a week per kid. Say you have two kids, that's about $640 a month. If you're in the poverty level, you will opt to buy food and gas, and also try to make ends meet so that you have a roof over their head, but not prioritize this expensive education starting so early in their life. Why would you? It was a difficult situation, but advocates because of research like the Abbasidarian Project and the Perry Preschool Study, felt they had a case to make that large-scale public investments in high-quality early childhood education were not only transformative for children, they had a clear long-term return on investment for New Mexico as well. Education is a key, graduation is a key to fighting the poverty, and that fights most of the chronic illnesses you know, that we experience in, in poor populations. So I like to explain like to our legislators, the brain, this little brain from prenatal, you know, to 18 months uh, of age, 
there's 19,500 synapses per second that are being formed. But adverse child experiences, uh, poverty, um, alcoholism or drug addiction by the parents, homes, uh, insecurity, not having a home, um, all these impacts are adverse child experiences. And that's like taking uh, and poking holes in the clay before it dries. And then you take the big investment of K through 12 and you want to pour it into that pot and you wonder why it can't hold it. But those arguments, clear and compelling as they were, fell on deaf ears. It was always about resources. It was always about the budget. And then the people that get to invest this in the stock market, they've got an interest in this, right? There's many people with interests making money on it. But there was the theory by the, the conservatives that what about the future? You know, if we damage this trust, well, we hired our own economist and we brought him in. Nobody in the state would take the contract. Nobody in the state wanted to touch this because they wanted to get other contracts from the state. The trust, the land grant permanent fund, was established by Congress at the time of New Mexico statehood. Now, thanks to the sea of oil known as the Permian Basin, contains more than $25 billion. It's New Mexico's money, it's endowment, if you will, but here New Mexico feels the weight of the past. At statehood, the federal government would not entrust the new state and its largely Hispanic population with full control of its own resources. The permanent fund can only be tapped by a state constitutional amendment and then only if ratified by Congress. That's what Sanchez and his colleagues needed, a constitutional amendment to support funding for early childhood education for everyone. It wasn't going to be easy. So this was going to be uphill. The last time they had done a constitutional amendment uh, to, to change the, the distribution of the fund, that was with a Democrat governor supporting it, both the U.S. senators supporting it, you know, uh, and the, the Speaker of the House supporting it. And it barely passed. So we knew this, this is going to be uphill battle. This is going to be hard because the opposition is very powerful in our state, very, very powerful. So we felt that it would take time, uh, but it was gonna take a lot of educating people. How hard it was going to be was revealed on the very first attempts to get it passed. We made it through the House of Representatives. That's a big deal. That's a bigger body to, to, to influence. Passed the, the House of Representatives, and we're waiting for a hearing in the Senate Finance Committee. It's a 60-day session, and on the last night before the session ends, they give us the hearing at 11 o'clock at night. And one of the senators, she says, I was expecting to see all these children at this hearing. Where are the children? Madam Senator, they went home a long time ago. You know, your, your trick has worked. So uh, we knew we were going to be up, up against the wall. The following sessions, three of them, we didn't even get a hearing. As it turned out, early childhood education was not a major priority for several key legislators, including the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. New Mexico legislators are unpaid and only meet for two months a year, effectively giving the committee chairs extensive powers to set priorities and leave things off the agenda. Frustrated in the Senate, the coalition sought a new strategy. For Alan Sanchez, that meant taking the campaign directly to the people. There are only a little more than 2 million people in all of New Mexico, but they are spread over the fifth largest state by area in the country. For Sanchez, that meant hitting the airwaves with an attention-grabbing attack. 
Now, New Mexico has a beautiful, wonderful campaign for its tourism called New Mexico True. And, and it's wonderful. Everybody sees it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, this is New Mexico. We spell chili the right way. We know what it means to be local. And to welcome our guests. We like our hunts hard. And our cowboys real. Our food hot. Trout large. And our cars low to the ground. That's New Mexico true. The tourism ads told one story of New Mexico. Sanchez had another story in mind. And I started thinking, why don't they tell the truth? You know, if this is New Mexico true, where is the truth of New Mexico? This is New Mexico, where the cold mountain air is an invitation to adventure, where we wait all day just to see the sunset, where our spirits soar far beyond the horizon and our children are left far behind. 31% of children live in poverty and thousands go hungry every day. In New Mexico, there are endless opportunities for discovery, yet few opportunities for our children. New Mexico Truth. The New Mexico Truth campaign drew immediate attention across the state, and it poked awake a political giant, the Mothers of New Mexico. But it also galvanized the opposition. And there were cartoons in the Albuquerque Journal, and they would show, you know, you could tell it was myself and probably, and, and the sponsor and some advocates trying to, to break into a safe, you know, make us the robbers. They would call us that we're going to uh, raid the fund, all, all this discriminatory type of language. And then, you know, they, they, they made one with a stagecoach with the money, land grant permit funds on the stagecoach. And they're saying, look out, you know, the pre-K gang hangs out in these areas and they're going to raid that, that fund, right? That's right. The pre-K gang. Here to rob you of your possessions to help children. It's hard to think of a less demonizing name than that, and it didn't work. Support for the amendment swelled, and the coalition of support of what was now known as Constitutional Amendment 1 grew. You know, picture, picture New Mexico, Santa Fe in particular, in the middle of February. It is cold. It is unforgiving. It is usually windy, so it's even worse. Um, and there's not a lot of snow, so it's not fun cold. It's just the miserable type of cold. Uh, and these families would turn out from all over the state, many of them in rackety little school buses that somehow someone managed to get for free and transport these families, these moms and dads and children, little children, right? Uh, Home-based providers who would bring their six kids under their care to the Capitol and religiously every year do a march around the building and then go inside the building and advocate with their legislators. Um, these are folks who are not paid, you know, they're not getting wine and dine. They're not getting a fancy dinner. If they're lucky, maybe somebody, some nice volunteer bought some cold pizza for everybody to eat on the way back home. Uh, but seeing those kids and you're right. Some of those kids don't remember that they were part of history. I mean, for a while, these kids would show up. I remember the first March, they all had yellow umbrellas, um, because the opposition would say, don't tap the permanent fund. It's for a rainy day. And these kids would say, well, it's pouring, right? And they'd walk around with their umbrellas. That's Javier Martinez. In 2015, he was elected to the New Mexico House of Representatives. And today, he is a Speaker of the House. Early on, he supported the campaign for Constitutional Amendment 1 and a strategy to embrace the attacks of the opposition and turn it against them. 
Um, and they would editorialize against us all the time. They would call us raiders and bandits. I mean, it's it's real tricky stuff, right? Because like it made it seem like we were stealing, right? And we would say, wait a minute, it's the people's money. And quite frankly, it's the children's money because it's their generational trust fund. And somehow we are raiding it. We are the thieves, right? So at some point uh, during one of those marches, a bunch of little kids showed up with little masks and little cowboy hats, like little bandits ready to raid the fund, right? I mean, it was the cutest thing ever. For years, the families marched, leafleted, and knocked on doors. Inés Carrillo and her 11-year-old daughter, Heidi, remember going to the Casa Redonda, the roundhouse, with pancartas, flyers. You know she's charging the, the, the flyers? The, yeah, the flyers, those pancartas. Yeah, the pancartas. I, yeah. I sometimes like painted like them or like helped. And like I just walk around carrying them, even though they're like twice my size or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what the sign said? What would, do you remember? What in the sign said? I remember like it was the um, New Mexico flag, and it said some stuff, but I don't remember what it said. Uh, well, the only thing I felt there was being cold <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I I just I don't really know, but like I just felt like I was just carrying a sign and just helping. My mom. Do you remember when so. we was walking, canvas knocking the door? You said, Mama, it's cold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she was waiting for me in the truck. Yeah. <laughs> Merlene Gallegos, who we met earlier, also remembers when she ended up in the roundhouse. Estuvimos en la Casa Redonda también. Eso fue un poco frustrante para mí, la verdad, porque nos tienen en un concepto como niñeras, o sea, la niñera que está observando. Merlin said that they were in the roundhouse as well. This was a bit frustrating for her, really, because they think of them as nannies, or the nanny that is observing a child. And no, that's not how their job is really like. Their profession in childcare is not like that. The campaign and stops at the roundhouse all were, at least to a point. The advertising campaign and the marches lifted public support. Yet in the power politics of Santa Fe, things did not change. Each year, the proponents would file a bill in the first hour of the session, making a joint resolution number one. Each year, it would pass the House and die in the Senate. So it became very obvious that those who were standing against this proposal, that very small group of senators, Democratic senators, were not going to be moved by any policy argument we made. Uh, that became evident, that became clear. We still didn't give up though. We knew that we had to keep pushing, we had to keep getting them on the record, we had to keep the pressure on them. And ultimately, the best pressure was at the ballot box. Um, and eventually, um, the one who was the most powerful, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, was voted out by his constituents, right? Mostly based on this particular issue. Um, he used to represent a community down that includes the town of Deming, New Mexico, very impoverished community, uh, one of the one of the poorest counties in the state, Luna County, um, and it cost him a seat. With the defeat of John Arthur Smith, the path opened up. The bill passed the Senate in 2021 and was placed on the ballot last November. The Albuquerque Journal continued to vociferously oppose the robbing of the trust fund, but the die was cast. Constitutional Amendment 1 passed with over 70% of the vote, making New Mexico effectively the first state in the nation with a constitutional commitment to fund universal pre-K and to support better and more equitable wages 
for caregivers and preschool educators. Well, you'd almost made it the first state. That's right. In the strange neocolonial world of New Mexico politics, constitutional amendments involving the permanent fund still have to be ratified by the U.S. Congress. Not a certainty when control of the U.S. House was about to swing to Republicans who it was feared might be less friendly to ratifying the amendment. It took one last big push in the U.S. Congress in the lame duck session at the end of 2022 to get it across the line. Success wasn't certain, maybe not because of opposition, but just because of the difficulty of getting on the agenda in the waning days of the Congress. But having come this far, there was no denying the advocates in that last mile. Constitutional Amendment 1 was passed by the Senate on December 22nd and then by the House on December 23rd. It was then signed by President Biden on December 29 as part of the Omnibus Appropriations Agreement. The passage of Constitutional Amendment 1 was an historic achievement, but even its key supporters acknowledge that it is only one step towards resolving a lifetime of inequality. Right, New Mexico is still a place where the Spanish conquest is felt every day, right? We are home to 23 uh, uh, sovereign indigenous nations that you can drive upon five miles north, five miles south, and everywhere in between. Um, and we've done a pretty lousy job historically of addressing some of those historical inequities, uh, whether it's uh, how we have treated um, our indigenous brothers and sisters, whether it's how we've treated uh, Hispanic land grants, right? Because this was also once Mexico, um, and the generational trauma that you see. If you go to communities in northern New Mexico, for example, there are communities that still speak Spanish, right? And yet they are some of the most remote, divested from communities in the country. That still exists in New Mexico today. Access to funding is only the first step, and New Mexico is now tasked with replicating at scale the high-quality programs found in places like Union City, New Jersey. It's a significant challenge ahead, and parents are already asking questions about how this will work in practice. But, at least for now, those concerns are secondary to a sense of optimism, a sense of possibility and a belief, not so common in America these days, that our children's future can be brighter than their parents. Like the excitement from Karen Mejia about the funds for childcare reaching those in need. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel when that passed? <laughs> Great. <Yeah>. Amazing. <laughs> so amazing. Because yeah. you can fix a lot of problems for the community, because some communities never received help. The optimism and sense of possibility is palpable at places like the Avengers Learning Center, an early childhood facility run by Karen and her husband. When we visited on our way out of town, we couldn't help but feel the excitement, the belief that Constitutional Amendment 1 will provide greater opportunity and hope for families that have struggled to balance childcare with all the economic pressures of our day. The enthusiasm was hard to resist, as was the enthusiastic welcome of the happy denizens of the center. I asked Speaker Martinez what it felt like last November when Constitutional Amendment 1 passed after 12 years of trying. He told me that it felt great, but it wasn't the moment that he will always remember. It was, it was something else. It was such a beautiful thing to see. However, when I, when I did shed tears was when we passed the Senate floor in the 2021 session, right? Once we got through the Senate and I knew it was gonna get on the ballot, um, unfortunately, it was the COVID session, so we were all remote. 
and I didn't get to be in the building and all the families didn't get to be in the building because that had been my dream, right? Like if you've been to the Roundhouse, there's a big gallery uh, where you can fit up to two, 300 people in the house and in the Senate. Um, and we had envisioned packing that gallery with kids and families so that when the Senate took their floor vote and passed it, that all these families could rejoice and celebrate. That didn't happen, we were on Zoom. Uh, but I remember calling Alan Sanchez, is the first call I made, and I don't know if he told you this, but we both started crying on the phone. We couldn't talk to each other because we were crying on the phone. And then I said, I'll talk to you later, and hung up because it was way too emotional to finally experience that win. Um, a win that, again, it's not gonna benefit us. It's not gonna benefit my kids. It's about those that are coming, right? And it's about those kids and how they're gonna change the state. And I believe because we're a model for the country, it's gonna change the fabric of this country. For Alan Sanchez, the man he cried with, this has been a full circle moment for his home state. Uh, I am so happy that I was born in my favorite state. I'm so happy about the people of New Mexico. And they stood up, those that had to go to the polls and, and make that difference along the way, those that, that um, had to uh, go to Santa Fe and sit for hours waiting for a hearing uh, from, from tribes, New Mexico Pueblos and, uh, and the Navajo Nation. Um, we, we had governors of, of, of some of our tribes sit there with us, you know, waiting for eight hours for a hearing. I am so proud of our state of New Mexico because it has the resource. And, you know, the, the restorative justice in this is that the very lands that were seized from these, these populations was not benefiting the very vulnerable. It wasn't. Now it is. Their lands are coming home to them through the return of the investment. That is a great success story. Completely agree. A success story that will affect lives and lifetimes. And it's just as provocative to think as we look at issues of healthy life expectancy and equality, to realize that the things that happen when you're three, four, or five can have lasting consequences for your health when you're 50, 60, 70, and may decide whether you make it to 80 or not. For me at age 60, it's extraordinary to think that the events of over half a century ago are more determinative of my health than my diet, exercise, or healthcare today. Well, Ken, if you want to keep going down that path, then consider this. What happens to you even before you're born may be equally important. If you thought that preschool was the beginning of a lifetime of inequality, think again. Next week, we're going back to the beginning to explore prenatal health and its impact on a lifetime of inequality. All right then, consider my mind blown. And I hope you all will join us next week for the next episode of Century Lives. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Find out more at ncoa.org. And from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. Special thanks for this episode to Olay, organizers in the land of enchantment. Century Lives is produced by Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle and by Ramteen Arablui. 
Sundry Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.